You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Baptists have an odd relationship with the Christian tradition. Some of their most distinct beliefs and practices seem difficult to square with the views of other Christian communions, past and present. Of course, for some Baptists, this isn't a bug, it's a feature. They'll happily don the title of nonconformist, declaring, No creed but Christ. If you're a Baptist who takes seriously Christ's command that his disciples be one, that stance is a troubling one. But what if that's not a stance Baptists have to take? In a new book, Baptist in the Christian Tradition, its authors argue that such a contrarian pose doesn't do justice to the history of Baptist thought and practice. Early Baptists were keen to emphasize their confessional unity with other believers and defended their distinctives as developments in harmony with that unity. In fact, these Baptists of the past were surprisingly Catholic thinkers. I'm David Grubbs, your host for this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles, and with us today is Dr. Matthew Emerson, Professor of Religion and Dean of the Hobbes College of Theology and Ministry at Oklahoma Baptist University, and an editor of Baptist in the Christian Tradition towards an Evangelical Baptist Catholicity. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Emerson. Hey, thanks very much for having me. Well, I was excited to get this book and to read it. I'm, as my listeners know, uh, I'm a Southern Baptist, so uh, this was an interesting and exciting thing for me to consider because a lot of the books that I that I cover for this particular program are not from uh, my corner of the world, so to speak. Mm. So, how did this project originate? What what need do you see it addressing? Sure. So, my my very close friend Luke Stamps and I, uh, we formed a fast and close friendship while we worked together at California Baptist University in the early 2010s, and we realized that we had a number of common interests that included uh, historic liturgy and also pre-modern hermeneutics. And we, we talked about the fact that in Baptist life, often our churches are not necessarily clearly aware of all that precedes us in terms of the riches of the Christian faith and the Christian tradition. And so those common interests in historic liturgical practices and also in pre-modern hermeneutics, as well as us working on a couple of projects together related to retrieving the classical doctrine of the Trinity, uh, basically prompted us to ask, how can we how can we get this in the hands of more Baptist pastors and churches? And that connected us, that, that kind of conversation connected us with Brandon Smith, who's now at Cedarville, as well as Winston Hotman, who is um, at Southwestern Baptist. Now, Brandon and Winston were both at, at um, Criswell at the time. And we started something called the Center for Baptist Renewal together. And this was a uh, this is a website right right now, primarily a website that's intended to help Baptist pastors and laypersons, leaders, connect to all the riches of the Christian tradition, intellectual riches, liturgical riches, ministerial riches. Um, we also want to help Baptists connect with their own history as well. So all that to say, we also wanted to produce a book that would make uh, a more academic 
argument for what we were doing. So this isn't this is not necessarily the final word that we want to say, but it is maybe the first word we want to say about how Baptists can see themselves as connected to the Christian tradition rather than almost completely separate from it. It's also in uh, in terms of the scholarly field, it's also a response and in a conversation with what I would call more post-liberal Baptist approaches to Baptist Catholicity. So these would be from um, scholars like Steve Harmon at Gardner-Webb, Curtis Freeman at Duke, and others uh, who have attempted to ask the question, how are Baptists connected to the wider church and to the Christian tradition? But from some fundamentally different theological and philosophical starting points than we come from as conservative uh, evangelical Christians, and I don't mean either conservative or evangelical in a political sense, I mean it exclusively in a theological sense. So there was both a, a kind of practical prompt for this book and uh, an academic one in terms of the conversation we were trying to enter into. Renewal Through Retrieval is a project that a lot of Protestant traditions and uh, Christian traditions generally are uh, have been engaging in for a while. Where do you see the project your book represents sitting in relation to some of those other projects? Um, I'm thinking of of things like uh, uh, Allen and Swain's uh, Reformed Catholicity uh, or uh, other other kind of projects of that nature. Yeah, we see our project as hopefully in conversation and also contributing to that wider um, approach that that wider group of of um, scholarly works. We were definitely inspired to think more clearly and carefully about these things, like I said, by Harmon and Freeman, but also by, as you mentioned, Alan and Swain and the the other retrieval projects that have been coming out really for the last, I don't know, almost half century now, because really uh, retrieval began in some sense with the uh, Roman Catholic Ressourcement projects um, and then evangelicals, Protestants as well, have, have picked up on that in the last two or three decades. And so we're certainly not novel in asking these kinds of questions, but we do, and and really, um, we're not novel even in conservative evangelical in Southern Baptist life, because two of our heroes of the faith, Timothy George and David Dockery, have both been um, writing about these things for quite some time from within our own context. Um, so we're trying to, we're, we're not trying to say something new necessarily. We're trying to just move the ball forward in Southern Baptist life with this conversation. Excellent. Well, the title has the phrase Evangelical Baptist Catholicity in it. And I imagine that there are many folks who read the cover and maybe even some that are listening to this interview who think that phrase is an, ox an oxymoron. <laughs> so... And y'all deal with this. So how do we need to expand, adjust, our tune our definitions of Baptist and Catholic in order to make sense of the perimeters, uh, the parameters and the goals of your project and to see them as existing in a harmony and not in a paradox? Yeah, yeah, good question. So uh, the, the first term to deal with is actually the last one in that phrase, which is Catholicity. Uh, Catholicity doesn't mean Roman Catholic. Uh, it simply means universal, the whole church. 
And it's often described as the visible unity of the church. So if you were to read the Nicene Creed, uh, the Nicene Creed describes the church as one holy Catholic and apostolic. And um, so often when you talk about these these four notes of the church, unity is a is a I mean they're all theological concepts, but unity is kind of a conceptual theological way to talk about the oneness of the church, whereas Catholicity is the visible manifestation of the oneness of the church, the unity of the church. And so really what we're talking about is how is the church one in a visible, real way where we can say we're all part of the one church. And so when we're talking about Baptist Catholicity, we're not trying to talk about Baptists becoming Catholics or Baptists trying to adopt Roman Catholicism or Roman Catholic practices, we're talking about how are Baptists part of the one and visibly one Church of Christ, Church of Jesus Christ. Um, that, that's, that's what that term is referring to. The other, you know, you also ask, how can we clarify what Baptist means? Well, uh, for a lot of people just sort of, and this might have been me too at one point, um, instinctively, Baptist almost means automatically sectarian, and that's just not the case especially with early Baptists. So the, the original uh, 17th century British Baptists, to be a Baptist was not for them to be entirely separate from everybody else. So I would say just very briefly, I guess, those are the two ways that we would need to redefine those terms. And then once you kind of get reoriented in those ways, we can begin to have further conversations about what those terms mean and what they stand for and how Baptists are actually Catholic as in part of the one visibly one church of Jesus Christ. I appreciate the way each of the essays in its own way uh, addresses some of those same issues. Sometimes it's, 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 it has to be more a, a central part of the project than others, mm-hmm. but especially as a Baptist who grew up in a Southern Baptist church without actually really knowing much about what that, uh, what that identifier meant. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I appreciate the, the history lessons, uh, that, that a lot of the things I assumed meant Baptist historically, um, were often quite novel. So sure. I found that helpful. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad to hear it. That's what we want is helpful essays. <laughs> Excellent. Well, your own essay was the eponymous doctrine of, of our tradition, baptism. And that's growing up Baptist. That was the one that we got in, in fights with our, our, you know, our Presbyterian brethren about. <laughs> sure. and, and I always thought of it as this is the thing we do different from everyone else. But using, I guess, using this as a test case. How did you go about situating the Baptist doctrine of baptism within that great tradition of the visible one church? Yeah, that's a good question. So for this doctrine, and, you know, like you said, this is kind of the crux of the issue in in many ways. Uh, Baptists and non-Baptists tend to think of the Baptist understanding of baptism as a complete departure from tradition. So I'll just focus in on us Baptists for a minute. We actually often describe our understanding of baptism as a complete departure from tradition. Everybody else had gotten it wrong. 
up until the Baptists got it right. And, you know, they, we might say, yeah, everybody between AD 250 and AD, you know, uh, 1611 or whatever. Uh, so there were some early Christians who baptized by immersion. But after that, once once infant baptism became prevalent, um, it was a, a, a century, I mean, a, a millennia and a half almost that we all got it wrong. And in my chapter, what I want to what I want to demonstrate is that early Baptists didn't actually think of their understanding of baptism that way. They thought of their understanding of, of baptism as clearly in line with previous views of baptism, and especially with reformational views of baptism. But they also viewed the the mode and the participant of baptism as in need of further reform. So the gist of the argument is um, early Baptists very clearly affirm the kind of conceptual framework around, around what baptism is that exists throughout church history. And I, I use Greg Allison's, uh, he's a, a, a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, I use Greg Allison's summary of what baptism meant for Christians throughout space and time, which is that it served six purposes, forgiveness of sins, deliverance from death, um, regeneration or new birth, the gift of the Holy Spirit, renunciation of Satan, the identification with Jesus Christ. You can find each of those six aspects of baptism in early Baptist confessions of faith. Now, they're very careful to say baptism doesn't regenerate you. It isn't the means by which God forgives your sins, but it is a sign of those things. And so early Baptists were, they wanted to retain the historic understanding of baptism and a reformational view of the historic understanding of baptism. That is, it doesn't save you. Um, it, it's not part of the works that we cooperate in uh, to make God's grace effective in our lives. So it's a very Protestant view of the sacraments, the ordinances. But they said, listen, the reformers didn't go far enough. Um, there's still further reform needed with respect to mode. It's by immersion, not by sprinkling or, or dipping or pouring. And it is only for those who have confessed Jesus as Lord. And so infants are, uh, are not to be baptized. So, you know, my argument in the chapter is, look, Baptist views of baptism were actually very Catholic, not Roman Catholic, but Catholic as in trying to articulate the view of baptism that had been held by the whole church. But it was also a reformation with respect to mode and uh, participant. I know that your your article is simply too brief to, to chart the whole history, but mm. as I was reading it, I kept thinking... How is it that I think Baptists generally ended up thinking that the Baptist view of baptism is probably the most ham-fisted version of the one element of baptism in which we were different from others? That seems so strange to me. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I think that there just needs to be some rethinking about how early Baptists and current Baptists think about baptism in relation to the rest of the tradition. Of course, my chapter isn't going to solve all the problems in the world. There's no human book that can do that. Um, 
But and and I say that because I've talked to a, a number of non-Baptists and former Baptists and whatever else to know that there's still a serious objection um, and, and a strenuous one from non-Baptists that, that says, "Look, it's all fine and well if your view of baptism comports to the historic doctrine in these ways, but you're still denying denying our baptism." So. Uh, the, the Baptist view of baptism still denies that paedo-baptism is legitimately baptism. And so it it may advance the conversation in some ways, but I think there still is some serious uh, conversation that's going to have to happen before we can have the kinds of conversations needed to draw us closer together as as different denominations and fellowships within the one church of Christ. Yeah, that makes sense. One of the things that I appreciated in this book, and there's an there's an essay that considers it in general, but I feel like it's an element that crops up in a, in more than one, is the idea that the Baptist, not just that there's some kind of connection to the great tradition that we need to reclaim, but also that in some, that Baptist by being Baptists have made contributions to the church. Mm. So. What do Baptists give to the church as a whole, that that visible one church? And what would Baptists do well to receive from that great tradition of the visible one church? Yeah. Well, I would say that the two most obvious contributions are the modern mission movement, which is not, of course, entirely Baptist, but many of the key players in the early uh, days of the modern mission movement were explicitly Baptist. Um, and so the modern mission movement, one of those, the, the other um, obvious one, I think, is religious liberty. And so for for us, I, I boil down Baptist distinctives to a commitment to personal responsibility before the Lord. And I know this doesn't sound like it has to do with your question, but it does. Uh, and so, um, you know, that's why we only baptize professing believers, because we know that they are personally responsible for their confession of faith and can make it publicly. And that's who is um, a, a proper candidate for baptism. We emphasize local church autonomy because each local church is under the direct lordship of Christ and responsible for itself. We can still associate and have denominational ties, but each local church is responsible for itself before the Lord. And then that is also why we were so adamant about religious liberty from the beginning of our history, is because uh, we are responsible before the Lord for what we believe and teach, not before the state. And at the time of Baptist founding, there, there were not a lot of other people working towards that kind of religious liberty, and it was Baptists who contributed that to uh, to the Christian tradition. And you really have seen almost every other denomination or tradition within Christianity adopt some version of what early Baptists were arguing from the beginning of our history. So, so you know, there's also some contributions there related to personal responsibility, but the two big ones, I think, are, at least in my opinion, are, are modern mission movement and the conversation about religious liberty. Yeah. 
And of course, you know, in the in the book, I should say, um, Jason Dusing at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary has an excellent chapter uh, where he goes into religious liberty, but he also talks about some other issues that I haven't gone into here, and I don't want to, you know, spoil the chapter for you, but I would really encourage anybody who wants to pick up this book or just portions of the book, um, Jason's chapter is one of the key chapters in the text. They're all great, uh, but this is an important point that we don't want to just just say what can Baptists receive, but we also want to be clear what have Baptists given and what can they continue to give. I really appreciated that that chapter because whenever the move that says our tradition needs to connect from and draw upon these others for re, for renewal, whenever that move is made, the question I think should rightly be asked, well, if that's the case, why don't we just go join them? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, so a so along with this, uh, along with this move, uh, a kind of historically informed appreciation of reappreciation of the Baptist tradition, I, I feel like would necessarily need to accompany the other. Yes. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why we framed each chapter the way we did. I mean, there are some chapters who are not framed exactly like this, but many of the chapters are just saying, what's the historic position on this doctrine? And then saying, okay, here's what Baptists historically have believed, and oh, look, they're actually in line with each other, right? So a lot of times you see Baptists leaving Baptist thought because they think that we're so disconnected from the Christian tradition, both practically and intellectually. And it's just not the case, especially in the early the days of the early Baptists. They were not trying to um, completely disconnect from every other Christian tradition. So that's one way to answer this perceived exodus. I'm not sure it's actually as big as anybody thinks it is. But one way to answer it is to say, hey, listen, those of you who are trying to find something more rooted in the Christian tradition, well, Baptist thought and practice actually is rooted in the Christian tradition. But the other the other answer to that perceived exodus is to say, listen, there are reasons to stay Baptist that are more important than your reasons that you are than, than your perceived reasons to leave. And those include the distinctives that we have. They include especially our emphasis on what I just mentioned, which is personal responsibility before the Lord. That's in the Bible, and you can't ignore it. And um, I think that leaving the Baptist faith to, to go into other contexts simply because of a perceived lack of rootedness um, puts the puts the liturgical and intellectual cart before the, honestly, the biblical horse that is credo-baptism. And I, if, if there are non-Baptists listening to this, that's probably going <laughs> to make some of them fairly upset. But I think we need to be honest about this, that, that you know, we stay Baptist because we believe credo-baptism is what's taught in the Bible. As much as I would like for Baptists to adopt more historic liturgical practices, and as much as I would like for us to be more engaged with um, studying and understanding the patristics and medieval thought. At the end of the day, I remain a Baptist because I'm convinced that our distinctives are taught explicitly and clearly in Scripture. And I'm, you know, that's the that's the fundamental reason. There are lots of other reasons that we can talk about, but that's the fundamental reason is I believe our distinctives are taught in Scripture. I think that's the I think that's the place that the thing that you have to announce if you're going to have an honest conversation. 
right um because that that's the that's the hill right you you want to you want to readily label the hills that you're going to die on <laughs> indeed indeed well the one of the things that you mentioned uh you mentioned it earlier in the your answer to the first question and then also uh sort of following discussion about this book on twitter uh you you reiterated this as well that you don't see this just as a scholarly argument, but that you want a wider audience for the project. So what what benefit do you see to this project to Baptists who aren't just in the academy, but also are in pulpits or in pews or in committees or or whatever? I mean, what might it look like for this project to work its way out um, in my congregation? Right. Well, I think that there are a few different possible outcomes. One of them is related to what I just said, and that is that we hope this book will convince Baptists who are sort of on the edge about whether or not to stay, that they can and should stay if what they're wanting to leave for is some kind of better rootedness in the Christian tradition. Baptist practice and thought is clearly, explicitly, and repeatedly rooted in the historic practices and doctrines of the Christian faith. If we're, if you read carefully through early Baptist confessions, sermons, catechisms, etc., we were not trying to break off into some kind of new uh, splinter group. You know, it's the same kind of argument that you have to make with Luther when you're talking to a, a Roman Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox uh, person, that Martin Luther was not trying to create a new church, right? Baptists were not trying to create something brand new, out of thin air, me and my Bible, etc. Um, they were they were trying to clearly connect themselves to the historic Christian tradition through a right reading of Scripture. So that's one I think practical effect. I I, I think there's a just as an aside. I kept saying perceived exodus. I think there's this perception that so many people are leaving Baptist life to go into Pado Baptist traditions because of this rootedness thing. And I just don't, I actually don't think the number is quite that big. I think it's a perception thing. Um, so that's one practical effect. Another practical effect, I hope, will be for Baptist pastors, particularly, but also other Baptist leaders and laypersons who are interested to realize that there are riches in the Christian tradition, even prior to the Reformation that Baptists can draw from, both in terms of doctrine and in terms of practice. So there are ways that Christians have thought about particular theological topics or have thought about particular um, pastoral practices that are genuinely helpful to contemporary Baptist pastors, leaders, laypersons. And then the, the third, I think, practical import that I hope the book will have, and then the wider project of Center for Baptist Renewal, is in connecting Baptist pastors, ministers, uh, staff, lay leaders, laypersons, in connecting all these kinds of people to the Christian tradition, we hope that that will have practical import in what we do in our churches. So, you know, one, one easy example is most churches throughout space and time in the Christian tradition have recited a creed every Sunday. Well, could Baptists do that? 
could a Baptist church do that? And so we have resources on centerforbaptistrenewal.com that talk about how to incorporate saying a creed in your service or a confession. Um, you know, so saying a creed doesn't exclude also saying confessions. Uh, I know churches that recite portions of the Baptist faith and message 2000 every week. Uh, so those are the kinds of practical uh, practical results that we hope will come from this book, but also from the wider Baptist Renewal Project. I appreciated the chapter on uh, on liturgy, on the way that this uh, can work out in, well, in corporate worship, as, it, as it's called specifically. Uh, that, that is often a, I don't know, I, I, I have heard the the aesthetic critique <laughs> mm. of mm-hmm. of Baptist worship, which as a uh, as a as a Baptist for doctrinal reasons, um, I don't see that as a super compelling reason for for lateraling to another tradition. But at the same time, I have also been dissatisfied with the mm. with, with the aesthetics of uh, corporate worship and finding a way to articulate that that is something other than just i like different things <laughs> <laughs> right seems seems like the only the only way to go meaningly forward in those kinds of arguments <laughs> right yeah of course as as a baptist i want to be clear that we're not trying to tell churches what to do but we want to say these might be helpful for your church to incorporate that's that's essentially how we phrase it. We don't want to run over local church autonomy and say, in order for you to be a true church, you have to incorporate these liturgical elements. Elements, but we do want to say we believe incorporating these liturgical elements might be helpful and formative for your church. Yeah. So, the unity of the church. I, we mentioned the the idea that the church is visible unity and ever more visible and ever more unity as the goal. Um, I, I think it's uh, it's worth doing to set that eschal this that eschatological vision before before us of of one body gathered before the throne, not a giant filing cabinet. Um, but if that is the goal, what would this project offer towards pursuing that here and now both i guess at the level of at the level of denominational or structures at the level of perhaps the the academy where you and i are but also at the level of congregation what would it look like for us to as baptist to pursue to pursue that kind of oneness with other christians who aren't baptist and i know that it will be it's a different kind of thing. So for, for different groups, so maybe address other Protestants, but then also the other two big traditions of, of, of Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. Right. Yeah. I think that this is going to be a question that's answered differently by different people. Uh, but the, the starting point is to find the common ground that you can and work from there. And so for Roman Catholics, all, all Protestants, at least those who have retained um, the classical doctrines of God and of Christ, 
all Protestants have in common with Roman Catholicism, especially, but also with Eastern Orthodoxy in many ways, uh, the, the classical views on the Trinity and on the person of Jesus. And so that's one way to start. A lot of times these conversations start with the starkest points of difference. But I think if you're going to work toward understanding and work towards, hopefully at some point, unity, that you have to start where you agree. And so Protestants have in common with Roman Catholics especially, but also with Eastern Orthodoxy in most ways, the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith, namely the Trinity and Christology. Uh, once we once we move beyond that, though, uh, things get pretty tricky pretty quick. And so part of ecumenical work, uh, work towards visible unity, is clearly being able to clearly articulate what the other party believes before critiquing it or engaging it in any other way. So I think at that point, we'd have to move to things like doctrine of salvation, doctrine of the church. And before we begin to engage in some of the most tendentious conversations that exist in all of Christendom, namely justification and um, the episcopacy, we, we'd have to actually articulate what Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox believe about those things before engaging in critique. And listen, I, I believe there's there's a lot to critique in in both Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism as it pertains to soteriology and ecclesiology. But I think often those conversations are ended before they can begin because many Protestants, and honestly, especially Baptists, but not just Baptists, are ready to dismiss that conversation based on misperceptions, misunderstandings about what they believe about soteriology and ecclesiology, and also um, based on a kind of instinctual anathematizing of those traditions. And if you're going to have a conversation that intends to build towards unity, you have to at least start by articulating the other person's position in a way that they would agree with. So that's where you would start. And then it's, uh, you know, beyond that, it's okay, given given what you believe, how does that contrast with what I believe about this topic? So, for instance, justification. And then once you've clearly articulated your position and their position, is there actually any common ground here? Or are we just so far off that we can't ever move in the other direction unless one, you know, unless somebody's convinced of it? So that's that's the basic way that you could proceed in those kinds of conversations uh, they have been happening for 500 years, you know, so I, I don't think that uh, we're going to solve it today or uh, in the book. But I think that it's important to have those conversations in ways where you're at least trying to articulate what the other person believes in an accurate way. Yeah, I I have seen uh, work done more recently that gives me. Um, hope at least for the the rightly representing of of current beliefs um, I know and I was deeply immersed in these things um, sort of coming through college and all the rest of it that the Catholicism that I was taught to reject and critique was tridentine mm. <laughs> And, yeah. so, <laughs> and and so having all of my all of my uh, you know, 
16th century arguments queued up um, doesn't necessarily uh, fit me for the conversation of you know the late the late 20th and early 21st century um, there's there's remedial reading I guess we have to do <laughs> right that's right yes we do <laughs> one of the issues and I want to pursue this further uh, because we, we talked early about the notion of Catholicity, um, the the one uh, the one visible Catholic, Orthodox, Apostolic, like those those descriptors. That to be Apostolic, to have an ecclesi- a, a part of a what the the book calls an, a classical ecclesio- uh, ecclesiology, is to be Apostolic. But for both Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox, to be apostolic is to be in a communion ruled by a bishop who is in historical continuity with the apostles. And that's, that is, is not just a, a doctrinal, but a structural and organizational uh, difficulty. Would you, especially given that Baptists are Congregationalists? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is, where does this conversation start and where could you see it proceeding? Right. Yeah. So I can't remember if Luke and I have actually written this out yet, <laughs> but we want to make an argument that apostolicity is ultimately related to the authority of the apostles. Right. So, I mean, this should be obvious, I think, but um, that, that, Saying that the church is apostolic means that it is um, under the authority of the apostles, that its authority is gained from the apostles, et cetera, et cetera. And for Baptists, and honestly, for all Protestants except for Anglicans, um, this has to be reworked because for Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and from Anglicans, apostolicity and the authority of the church is in direct continuity via the ordination of bishops. And so, you know, the idea is that the apostles appointed and anointed um, the first set of bishops after them, and then so on and so on. So there's apostolic succession. Of course, for Roman Catholics, it's through the See of Peter. Um, for Eastern Orthodox, it is a bit different. For Anglicans, it's just through the bishop. Um, but we don't have that in other versions of Protestantism. And so especially for Baptists, and especially for Baptists, in, since we do affirm congregationalism, as you said, how do you affirm the apostolicity of the church? Well, to me, it's it's simply an affirmation that the apostles' authority has been divinely uh, distributed and inspired in the text of Scripture. So when you read about the Bible, it's often described as the book of the prophets and the apostles, that is the Old Testament, New Testament. Um, often you can actually hear people just describe the whole thing as written by the apostles. Even if it, even if the Old Testament was prior to Christ, this, the idea is that it's all a testimony and commissioning, testimony to and commissioning from Jesus. 
And so apostolic authority for Baptists is, is found in the apostolic deposit, that is the Bible. So to be apostolic means to submit to scripture. And that's what we try to do is those congregations governed by themselves under the authority of Christ as known in the Bible by the power of his Holy Spirit. So, so we don't, we don't, we don't need bishops in order to be part of the apostolic authority game. I would say no, and I don't think I don't know how I would say yes and maintain my Baptist <laughs> card. Yeah, I, yeah, th- this is this is such, such an interesting question uh, to me. Just you know, tiny bit of biography. Uh, in my in my day job, I'm an English professor and. My the period that I cover is the early to later Middle Ages. So while I attend a Baptist church on Sundays, uh, the mm. folks I'm reading during the rest of the week are, you know, bead. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> so so there's this real kind of uh, disjunct in in my experience of of kind of thinking through these matters of swimming in this. Uh, during the week in this in this written tradition that thinks of the church as constituted in one way that my upbringing and you know my my current worship my current membership is is with uh is in a body that that constitutes it in a in a different way Mm -hmm. and I i i i find the conversation of of trying to figure out how this this present that i'm in can mess with can mesh with the past uh is i i find that one really interesting so i i am i'm looking forward to seeing the way uh i hope the way that this project uh spawns births other other projects that sort of take the topics dealt with in a shorter essay and then that becomes a book and it becomes a series of books answering one another. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I hope so. I'm interested to see what happens too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on Christian humanist profiles, we like to give our guests the last word. That's what hospitality means to us. So what would you like our listeners to be considering as we wrap up our conversation? Well, I think that for this particular conversation, I would just want those who are listening to consider how Baptists have received much from the Christian tradition, both liturgically and theologically. And while we have much to give, and often conversations about Baptist distinctives center on what Baptists give to the great tradition, uh, I hope that listeners will consider how much we've received from it, both practically and theologically. Yeah. Gratefulness is a healthy stance. Indeed. (laughs) Well, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Emerson. I've really enjoyed our conversation, and uh, I hope that our listeners will enjoy, well, listening to it. Absolutely. Thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. And thank you, dear listeners, for joining us for this conversation. We've been speaking to Dr. Matthew Emerson, one of the editors of Baptists and the Christian Tradition. 
Toward an Evangelical Baptist Catholicity, published by B&H Academic. And there will be a link to that publisher's page for the book in the show notes. If you would like to leave feedback on this episode, you can send an email to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can post comments on those show notes at our blog, christianhumanist.org. We're also on Facebook. We're also on Twitter at CH Radio Network. We appreciate uh, good ratings on iTunes and wherever else podcasts are distributed, whatever the verb is for that. In any event, I wish you all grand weeks. The Christian Humanist Profiles show is on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and our editor is Britt Stack. Be listening for the next Christian Humanist Profiles.